and Apex Lab Podcast. Hey there, welcome to the Level Up Engineering Podcast, where we speak to the most experienced technology leaders from around the world. So stay with us to learn actionable management insights to take your engineering team to the next level. This show is powered by Apex Lab, a team of experts in end-to-end digital product development. ApexLab.io Welcome everyone to the Level Up Engineering Podcast. I am Carolina Toth, your host, and every other week I interview accomplished tech leaders to talk about some of their challenges and what they have done with their lives. And I am so excited to have Joseph Gaffro here today with me, who is Director of Engineering at Health Sherpa. He has 10 plus years of experience with building startups and development teams and software and all that jazz. So I'm really happy that we will talk about building development processes and getting developers ready to scale. But before we do that, Joseph, thank you so much for joining us today. And first of all, please tell us a bit about yourself, who you are, what your passions are. Yeah, Carolina, uh, pleasure to be here. I'm Joseph. I'm an engineering leader over in uh, Seattle, Washington. I've been an engineer for about uh, 10 years now in various management and engineering positions. And most recently, I've been at startups and throughout my career, uh, helping their development teams grow and improve their delivery and execution practices and helping them get to the point where they can grow sustainably and continue executing effectively and efficiently. I'm currently working uh, remotely as the director of engineering at uh, Health Sherpa, which is a health insurance marketplace based out of San Francisco. I actually started my career in a state government consultancy, developing things like financial record management software, time and leave vacation systems. And uh, after that, I realized that, you know what, I'm not really a big fan of working for this, uh, state government uh, software enterprises. So I uh, took a stab at my own startup. It failed miserably. And then uh, ever since then, I've uh, had that startup itch. And I've worked at various uh, other companies, uh, payments companies, fundraising companies, and pre-seed, seed, uh, series A, series B, and just helping them execute and get better at their practices and processes. I also do a lot of mentorship on the side, I do some management consulting, and I'm a startup advisor at a couple of organizations as well. Passion-wise, I have pretty standard hobbies. You know, I watch TV, play video games, lose money in the stock market. So yeah, it's <laughs> pretty much a very simple uh, life that I have. How oh, awesome. Thank you so much. It sounds like a fun, awesome life from this perspective, at least. Not so much the losing money on the stock market thing, <laughs> but... Um, Depends you know, on what you find fun. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, practice make per- makes perfect, right? So perhaps... Later on, if we talk, you know, a year from now, you will be able to tell us that you have gained a lot of money on the stock market. So welcome. Thank you for joining us. Let's start with some of the definitions so that we can be on the same page. How do you define the difference between a developer team in an early startup and in a company that's ready for rapid growth? You have seen kind of both ends or both sides of the spectrum? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I've never really felt that teams are ready for rapid growth. (laughs) It's always been my feeling that it's like laying the railroad tracks as you're about to move across them and figuring out how to turn that train that you're on into an airplane at the same time, right? But I'd say uh, 
fundamentally, uh, some of the challenges of rapid growth are kind of evident regardless of what company you're in. Things like uh, knowing how to onboard engineers quickly and getting them from being that zero productivity or in some cases productivity drain into actual uh, productive engineers. That's a one area that teams that are better situated for rapid growth have, right? Other challenges are uh, alignment, right? As your organization grows, it becomes harder and harder to keep that cultural core uh, that uh, you originally had at the company. It becomes really hard to make sure that the direction that the team is moving in is aligned with the priorities of the organization, with the practices of the organization, with the goals, the annual goals, and making sure that the team is actually working on the things that are important, right? Versus just working on work, which is not necessarily a effectiveness maximizer when it comes to work. Teams that know how to onboard, you know, they have like this culture that is able to turn the tacit knowledge as in people's heads into this uh, explicit articulate knowledge that doesn't require uh, work to go and give to other people. And that's through documentation, shared norms, uh, things of that nature. And it helps, once again, turn the new engineers into productive engineers by making sure that they can follow the breadcrumbs themselves when it comes to uh, figuring out uh, what they need to do next or how they can go and find an answer to a question that they have. And that real culture really about knowledge share, it's about uh, improvement and it's about having that courage to go and ask those questions and not be afraid to look dumb and having that psychological safety to do so, right? A team without psychological safety is not ready for growth because with growth comes the risk of uh, failure, right? Growth comes speed, comes challenges. Uh, You need to go and change a whole bunch of stuff. And change inevitably and naturally has a certain element of risk to it. And if you don't have that psychological safety to take risks, you're not going to be able to maximize the effectiveness of the new engineers you have because they're going to be so afraid to go and do things that might make them look dumb, right? Because from the perspective of a new engineer coming in, it's, oh, I want to do my best, right? I want to show people how good I am. And then if you get punished or there's some punitive aspect to making a mistake, which new people will always make, that's just going to cause them to kind of back off from contributing their ideas, contributing their knowledge and doing things that help them become more productive over time. Right. Wow. Okay. So first of all, did I get that correctly? You never feel that an engineering team is ready to scale? Is that right? It, that's always right because it's one of those things where as an org grows and has more capacity, that capacity gets used and then the focus expands even more and then you have more stuff you need to do. So it's always right. only one step ahead. All right. So that, like that could be perhaps the first flag for all of us. Like even if you don't feel like you're ready, sometimes you need to go ahead and take on the challenge of rapid growth. Yeah. So. Let's get into the nitty gritty a little bit and explore the challenges of a small startup development team that is going to scale like 50 to 100% every year. Perhaps let's look at the first year. What would some of the things be that you foresee in a small startup trying to scale? Yeah, uh, as I noted before, bringing developers up to speed is really, really important. And, you know, when you're growing and you bring on developers, you can solve for that, right? But if you're growing and you bring on one or two developers a year, you can take the time to have an engineer that's already on your team, go and set that person, spend less time coding and more time mentoring and onboarding. But 
if you're growing like 100, 200%, 300% in a year, you're not going to have enough engineers. You're not going to have enough resources to do that. So it really becomes about how do you go and onboard these engineers without slowing the team down and, or suffering the quality aspects of it, right? A lot of startup teams haven't documented anything because, you know, the focus is on building things, the focus is on delivering the next feature, right? Um, so the challenge for small startup teams is getting out of that mindset and getting to the point where you're saying, hey, hey, if I share this knowledge once by writing it down, then I can share it with as many people as I need without ever having to write it down again, without ever having to take my time or another engineer's time to go and share that knowledge again. And if you don't have that, an engineer will come in and they'll be like, what is all this stuff? What is this domain? What is this technology? And they'll go through it by either asking tons of questions from the engineers that the engineers may or may not answer. If they answer it, it takes time from the engineer that's already on board. It takes time away from their work. And if they don't answer it, then the engineer kind of, the new engineer will just flail and make mistakes and kind of run through trial and error. I've seen orgs take weeks for an engineer to get set up just to have their local development environment running because nothing was documented or nothing was on, automated. And, you know, if the gold standard here is to have a new engineer able to deploy to Prada on day one and deliver that increment of value, startups are often very far away from that. So closing that gap is really, really important. And documentation is one of the best ways to do that because it's just so repeatable. You take that knowledge that's in your head, you put it on a piece of paper, turn it into a playbook, turn it into a runbook, and then you can go and just share it with any new person that comes on, right? And then you can create these document repositories where you, instead of saying, giving uh, new engineers these little piecemeal things, you say, hey, new engineer, look at this document a repository, and, and this is basically everything you'll ever need to know about working on X part of the system or uh, working with Y team, right? I think another area that engineers or engineering organizations that are growing really rapidly have issues with is stability. When you onboard these new people, it means that there's people with less information making changes. They want to be productive. They have to be productive, right? But they don't have that domain expertise and that onboarded eyes, so to speak, uh, providing insight, right? So if you have engineers making changes and your onboarded engineers may not be available to review those changes or make sure that those changes aren't going to impact these other parts of the system, uh, mistakes are going to happen, right? Bugs are going to slip in change failures occur, and the teams that haven't built foundational observability and traceability elements into their process, into their technology, they're going to have a rough time because things are going to break. They're not going to know about it. Uh, customers are going to get mad. Internal operations teams aren't going to be able to do the things that they need to do. And uh, some of these things may not be detected for a very long time, right? I worked in organizations where we had a financial, basically tracking errors pile up over a period of a year. And then when we finally realized, hey, this is something that's broken, we couldn't fix it because we did, weren't tracking that data. We didn't have that data. We weren't tracking things correctly. And it was a total loss of that data, which would have been otherwise very, very valuable. So uh, yeah, making sure that the developers that are on the team that it's growing, they have at least some idea of, is my software working? Is the software up for certain people, but not others? And if something happens, do we have the logging in place? Do we have the auditing in place, the observability in place to figure out what's happening here and trace it and so that we can possibly restore from whatever's uh, happening. Finally, uh, I think sustaining speed is also really, really difficult for development teams that are growing, right? As you grow, there's always a temptation from the rest of the organization to 
take that new capacity that you have and apply it to new problems, which might mean new product areas, it might mean new business lines. Uh, whereas when you're a small team, you have to prioritize really, really brutally. But when you're a large team, that brutal prioritization mindset almost seems to go away at times. And you uh, often start focusing as an organization on innovating only, right? But the challenge of always building net new is that you're not supporting your things that you've already built. You're not responding to customer feedback of these incremental changes that might provide a tremendous amount of value for the customers and the users of your product, but aren't really these cool new product lines that might result in 10 and 100x revenue capabilities, right? Now, the chances of that are very slim, but that's what product organizations office fo often focus on when they have this additional capacity and capability. Yeah, so, you know, it's not enough to build a net new all the time. You have to have a plan to run it, and it does take engineering capacity to run these things. Otherwise, these things are going to break, and then it's going to interrupt the plans that your organization does have to build these net new things, right? You're going to have fires. You're going to have critical bugs. You're going to uh, have... Uh, you know, customers who are about to churn that you then need to go and do something special for interrupting your actual roadmap just to keep them on board. So yeah, sustaining speed is a is a pretty uh, big issue as well. Right. Thank you. That was a lot of really good advice for for all of us. The first thing that you were talking about is creating documentation. We all know that software engineers just love to create documentation all the time. And um, also they love reading documentation. And so my question, the first thing that popped into my head is, okay, if somehow I am as a really eager software engineer and I do create the documentation or I do create some written processes for onboarding other engineers or showing them the way are they actually going to read them? Is it going to be as effective as if I had told them in person? What is your experience with that? How do you create a culture in which writing and reading is the baseline? Yeah, I think they require two different approaches. Writing documentation is something that just needs to be baked into the process of building new things, right? It's not enough to build something and just let the world have it, right? I think uh, you need to build this culture in your engineering organization that you have to be able to maintain the thing that you're building as well. And part of that is being able to explain how that thing works. And uh, on teams that I've been in in the past, that really is the mindset, right? If you can't explain how it works, you don't truly understand it. And engineers, I think of, that resonates with them because, uh, you know, they want to understand, right? They, they want to go and share this cool thing that they built. So creating a sharing culture can also be really, really valuable, right? There's like a, things like lunch and learns. There's things like, um, you know, book clubs. And you can use these opportunities to give engineers a chance to go and demonstrate these things that they built. And the best way to demonstrate these things that they built is not only to show how it works, but also under the hood, what cool things have, have they worked on and have they done. And that requires documentation, right? That requires you to go and either create a PowerPoint or something that explains how this thing works. Another thing is making sure that uh, if you have engineering leaders and engineering managers in your organization, that they are creating essentially a track record of the things that they've built or that their teams have built and making sure that if that project needs to be transitioned into a different team, 
it can be right and that there's enough sufficient documentation and uh, you know you can formalize that as part of the responsibilities of an engineering manager or a lead engineer they can go and then delegate that to the engineers that's working on it but it has to be a formal expectation right it can't just be oh yeah create documentation whenever you want it like it does need to be something that is uh, uh top down almost but also uh you know leverage the bottom up uh, desires of your engineers to share that knowledge as well awesome thank you thank you so much what about reading yeah reading documentation um i think that's different engineers like learning in different ways. Um, some engineers will love to ask tons of questions, but I think that they'll quickly find that not all their questions are answered and they can't really make progress as easily if they're not getting these answers. So maybe giving them the, uh, the documentation and then answering their questions at the same time. It's definitely not a read the manual style culture, right? We, de we definitely want these engineers to be confident in reaching out and asking questions and not being afraid to like look dumb right but at the same time we want to make sure that the engineers are doing their due diligence that they're taking the initiative if they do have the resources available to them they should use it right and one of those resources that should be very clear is the documentation so it's it's a balance right you don't want engineers just diving deep into the documentation and spending hours and hours looking for something that can be answered in five minutes by another engineer. But at the same time, you don't want them to continually ask a hundred questions a day to an engineer when they can very easily read the documentation. So there's no hard and fast rule to that, but it's a balance. And I think that um, just making sure that people realize it's a balance and making sure that new developers, letting them feel comfortable asking questions, but also uh, directing to the uh, documentation is going to be really important. Thank you so much. So with that said, you have touched on a lot of things about checking back on the things that you have built and supporting the things that you have built. What are the first processes that need to be standardized? I would imagine that we do need standardization if we are trying to grow rapidly. So what are the first processes that should be closely monitored and and perhaps course corrected? Yeah, for technical practices, I'd say uh, either standardize or automate your deployment process. Make sure that sending code and delivering it into production is repeatable and consistently done regardless of what developer is doing it. Document every single step. And uh, once you have that documentation, it's only a stone's throw away from automating that, right? Either turning it into a container or something. But yeah, deployment is a good one. Um, monitoring is also a pra technical practice that you should standardize, right? Post-deployment, uh, if you go and make a change, what are the things that an engineer should be looking at to make sure that their thing worked, right? Did they load the page? Do the metrics look okay? Response times, error rates, right? And if possible, automate it, right? There's a lot of great tools out there that can go and just give you automatic uh, alerts directly into your Slack. Set those up, right? It doesn't take more than like 10, 15 minutes to set those tools up and they'll just save you so much time in the long run. Uh, notifications are really important. like. Tools like Pingdom, for example, you can say, hey, if this page goes down, go and send an alert to me, right? And it'll do that check every single minute. And tools like that will basically prevent you from even having to look at this uh, software to see if it's working because it will tell you whether the software is working or not. And once again, that just saves engineer time. Incident response is also something that uh, you should standardize. Things are going to break. 
and your engineer should know how to resolve it and fix it so that you can go in basically reduce that mean time to restore right and if your engineers are trying to figure out during an incident how to resolve that incident or what they even have to do in the first place that's a waste of time that's going to really lead to these uh you know hour two hour three hour outages but if your team has a standardized incident response process and you know, know that for things that are, were uh, change failures or things that were that broke due to an engineer's change, you have to follow the sequence of steps. It's a lot easier, right? Even junior developers at that point when they're deploying, they can go and follow that checklist and be like, oh, well, the change I deployed broke. Here's what I have to do to go and fix it, right? Once you have those technical practices in place, you know, automate deployment, uptime monitoring, uh, what have you, then you can kind of move a bit more upstream. Make sure that your uh, leads and your engineers, you know, they're having regular one-on-ones so that their engineers on your team are happy, they're productive, they're growing. Make sure that culturally you're growing in the right direction, right? Uh, some some leads may take, for example, uh, an incident and an incident response as an opportunity to finger point, right? You want to make sure that you have that blameless culture so that people have that room to fail and people have the room to make mistakes and learn from it and growing because that's a part of growing, right? People need to be able to make mistakes so that they can go and learn from them and improve. And if they try to avoid mistakes, what they end up doing is just stop growing. But once you clean your own house, your engineering organization, so to speak, and you make sure that the culture is good, then you can start looking at your functional peers, right? How does engineering and product work together? How does engineering and design work together? Is the ticket quality correct? Are there actual requirements or are you just getting one-liners? Do you have to work with your product organization to kind of define a set of information that you need or your engineering organization needs to execute on something, right? How are the teams operating, right? Are they doing waterfall? Are they doing agile with a capital A or agile with a lowercase a, right? I like to say that a lot of organizations say that they use uh, Scrum, but what they actually do is they're not iterative. They're not incremental. They just have like this uh, waterfall commitment that they broke into these mini waterfalls that they kind of try to complete in two weeks. But the goal never changes. The scope never changes. So in effect, it's basically just a series of waterfalls, right? That's not agile, but you know, in some cases doesn't necessarily need to be or need to be, but um, does it work for the organization, right? Are the development processes and practices that are being used, or do they align with the organization's values? Do they lead to the results and the effects and the outcomes that the organization is looking for? Uh, are they meeting the expectations, right? If, for example, a team says they're doing Scrum, but then they violate the Scrum contracts every single day, you know, they're not doing Scrum and that process might not be working for them, right? Uh, maybe it's better to switch to Kanban or even just a queue-based, um, you know, lean approach. And then uh, finally, um, branch even more outward, um, how does the product engineering and design organization interact with the rest of the company, whether that be sales, account management, right? Uh, how does the rest of the company know what's happening in the PED organization? If they make a request, do they have visibility into where that request goes or when they can expect that request to be completed, right? And this is when you should do things like uh, establish intake processes and make sure that everybody in the company knows, hey, here's this one spot you can go to to go and submit a request. Here's uh, the expectations in terms of response time, in terms of a commitment, in terms of scheduling that you can expect. And here's how you can go and help improve the chances that your thing is going to get done on time, either by providing, you know, XYZ information like deadlines, prioritization, what have you, or making sure that you follow that process. And what that does is really, really important. And I'd say that intake processes are actually incredibly important for growing companies because a lot of times organizations 
will go and do the thing that gets their job done the fastest. So the operations team, if they realize that, hey, I can direct message this one engineer and you know, 95% of the time that engineer will do the thing I'm trying to do, that's going to be the process they take, right? That's going to be the process they follow to go and get things done in the technology, uh, especially if their jobs rely on the technology functioning a certain way. But imagine if that's happening across the entire organization to multiple engineers, that's going to be incredibly disruptive to the roadmap, incredibly disruptive to the predictability of the engineering and execution in the organization. So you need to establish an intake process and identify that invisible work that kind of adds to the drag of the org and guide companies into that new a new process. Because uh, without that process, uh, you're just going to have a lot of chaos and a lot of messages, direct messages back and forth. Some things are going to get done. Some things aren't going to get done. And stakeholders are going to get, get confused. Engineering, product engineering, design organization is kind of going to turn into a black box of this thing that they don't know of what the status of their request is, right? And what they'll do in order to actually identify what the status of their request is, is they'll continue direct messaging engineers, which is a waste of the engineer's time. It circumvents a lot of the prioritization practices that uh, your organization might be attempting to, you know, make sure that you're focusing on the things that are, are most valuable. So yeah, definitely set up an intake process uh, and make sure that the organization is uh, following it as well. Thank you. I have so many questions. First of all, thank you for organizing it in such a way that it's like from the most modular to the largest modules in a sense, or at least that's how it made sense to me. What, in your opinion, is the preferred priority lane to this? So should we start with the CICD automation or should we start with the intake process uh, deliberation, or should we start with aligning the design and product and engineering teams? What, what is sort of the, the preferred way of standardizing all of these things? I don't think there's a preferred way. I think it's really, really, really circumstantial on the challenges your organization is facing, right? If your organization doesn't have incidents ever, let's say you're one of those special organizations that just delivers quality, then you may not need to immediately have an incident response plan, right? Uh, you can maybe take that risk and get away with not having automated monitoring, right? But I'd say that a lot of these things can also happen in parallel, right? You don't necessarily need to have your deployments automated before you start working on your intake process. You don't necessarily need to have observability in place before you go and talk, start talking with your product and design peers on uh, a SDLC plan, right? Yeah, it really depends. Organizations that are like five, 10 people, they may not need an intake process, but if you're scaling your organization's 30, 40, 50 people, you're gonna need an intake process because you're gonna have a whole variety of uh, cross-functional groups that you need to prioritize for, you need to align, you need to organize. So yeah, it really depends on the circumstances of your organization. And yeah, a lot of this can be done in parallel. I'd say do the thing that hurts the most. If for example, you as an engineering leader, you get pinged by seven different people uh, every single day about the status of a ticket, random ask that you don't even have a ticket for, then you no, know, maybe focus on that intake process. 
if you have a bunch of engineers who are unhappy and they don't feel like their careers are growing, maybe talk with your management team on creating that culture of uh, growth and improvement and making sure that they are keeping in touch with their engineers uh, on a one-on-one personal uh, management basis so that they can feel that they're part of a team and that they're growing and they're uh, succeeding and they're uh, getting better uh, at their jobs. Awesome. Thank you so much. I, I that really, I can feel what you just said. And I also, correct me if I am wrong, but from all the things that you have mentioned, what really struck me is just like creating a shared, agreed upon list of things that we should do. Like when you were talking about the intake process, I really felt like guys and gals decide who is responsible for what, and then don't undercut each other in a sense when you are not contacting the person who you should be contacting. And maybe that's just me, but from the first time you mentioned psychological safety, what really came to me was this alignment of everything in an organization. Yeah, alignment is one of the biggest challenges of a growing org, right? You get all these new people in um, that have all these different ideas that they don't have that shared context and that shared consciousness. You know, aligning an org of uh, three to five people all sitting in the same room all the time, very, very easy to do. You just turn and have a conversation. But when you're 30, 40, 50, 100 people on different floors or even different offices, it just gets a lot more challenging. And this is also where processes come into play, right? This is why processes are important in larger organizations. You can get away with no process in smaller orgs and smaller startups. But if you were to try to do the same thing in a org with 100 people, you know, that's an exponentially higher amount of communication uh, channels that you need to go through to get everybody aligned, right? I think if you have a team of like nine, uh, there's like 30 something communication channels between them. But if you have a team of 50, it's not, uh, you know, nine, uh, 36 times five, it's not 150 communication channels, it's like 1200 communication channels. So it grows exponentially. And if you were to try to keep every single person up to date, you know, on a one-on-one basis, like you did when the org was five people, you're going to have a bad time. It's not going to work. You're going to have to have like 1200 different conversations with every single message you deliver. So yeah, having processes in place, having like these minimums agreed set upon set of standards and things for, you know, basic things like submitting a ticket, like what information do you need? That all becomes very, very important. Thank you. Thank you. With that said, could you share a story with us about when you have standardized something in in a core team that was to rapidly grow or when you had to kind of reorganize communications channels because people weren't on the same page, perhaps? Is there any story that comes to mind? Yeah, I think I've done this at almost every company uh, I've been in. Um, yeah, I've been in a lot of uh, startups, companies that are about to go through this phase. One company was a fundraising company that uh, had no intake process. So we had a variety of different functions, finance, operations, account management, sales, product. So because there wasn't that intake process, uh, the natural thing that people did was they would once again, direct message the engineer 
they'd have or they'd have like a conversation in the office uh talk with one of the engineers be like oh hey this thing is broken can we fix it and the engineer's like yeah sure we can fix it and then they go the ops team a person would go and think and tell their team that hey engineering committed to fixing this uh go and tell everybody right so it led to these really weird commitments that nobody was tracking nobody was going or even working on and then when the deadline for these passed, um, the teams that made these requests would get mad and say, well, we, you, you committed. Uh, the engineering organization had become a black box. And from the perspective of our partners in the organization, we were missing all these deadlines that we didn't even know about as an organization, right? So that threw a wrench in a lot of our execution, like predictability, right? If we made a commitment to a key stakeholder, like say the CFO, when the CFO got mad, why isn't this done? We would have to drop everything we're doing and work on that thing and get it delivered on time, right? So that was a challenge. So we established an intake process. We defined a single uh, JIRA board that uh, people would go to to submit a request. We stated a commitment to go and look at that board twice a day. And we also made it as easy as possible to submit a request. We had a template, we asked some basic questions. It wasn't like a 10,000 line form that you had to fill out. It was basic things like, what are you asking for? When does it need to be done by? And then we also made sure that we got a commitment from the person submitting the ticket that they would go and be responsive to our questions, right? So that if we needed more information from them, they would be available or they would assign somebody as responsible to be available so that we can go and talk to them and have that discussion and get our questions answered. How awesome. So we set that up and that process wasn't followed, right? And why would people follow it? Because they were getting things done by direct messaging and talking to engineers. And that was a much simpler, much easier process than going and following this brand new intake process, right? People don't really like changing things that are working for them. So you actually, you know, have to give a bit of uh, the stick with the carrot. So uh, I told all of my engineers, you should never act upon a direct message you get from another team uh, ever again. If somebody direct messages you and asks you to do something in the technology and the product, you go and paste them the link to the intake board. And you know that was hard for some of the engineers to do because they really like helping people. They really like uh, fixing things, but they were dropping things that were important to work on things that were not important. And uh, that was very, very disruptive. So it it required a lot of repetition in the messaging of that, but over time, the engineers stopped doing random things for our different stakeholders. And word got around the company that the only way to actually make sure that your thing got done was going through this intake process. And uh, once that was done, it became a lot easier to go and manage that work. And, you know, it, it's not a lot of times a company will set up an intake process and then that intake backlog will grow and grow and grow and grow. Nobody will get answers. Uh, and then the people that switched over to that intake process will be like, this isn't working. I'm going to go and do the thing that was working before. So it's really important that once you set up an intake process, that you commit to it as an organization. So we did in the fundraising organization was we set up a team of two developers whose sole job it was to make sure that they responded to the urgent, important asks and to make sure that every single request got a response. That response might be, no, we're not doing this, but they got a response, right? Or for the urgent things that needed to be done, they went and executed on it as fast as possible. And we also made sure that that team was empowered to go and um, do the things necessary to prevent those issues from happening ever again, right? We didn't want to 
be this organization that was just always reactive, right? We wanted to kind of shift our response left and get to the point where we were preventing these things from even reaching the engineering organization to begin with. And as the syntake process played out, we saw a lot of patterns in the kinds of things that were being requested, right? Things like password resets or uh, account disablements, enablements. These are things that we can easily build internal tooling for so that engineering never has to go and process these things again. So it led to a lot of uh, preventative uh, work and tooling, internal tooling being built that gave and empowered the other stakeholders in our organization and let them do the things that they were originally asking engineering to do. And that essentially removed entire classes of requests from coming in, right? We used to get a request to go and say, hey, can you uh, calculate the aggregate number of financial transactions we had and list them in a certain way? Well, we just created an Excel report for that. And then we just had that automatically delivered to the uh, requester on a weekly basis. And those requests disappeared, right? Well, we never got those requests again. And over time, uh, what ended up happening was we just get fewer and fewer requests. We got interrupted a lot less. The organization uh, was able to create a certain amount of stability and kind of a protection from the interruption that were previously plaguing us. And it was easier to deliver after that because we didn't have to deal with urgent fires. And uh, we turned our focus to fire prevention, which is a lot more rewarding and uh, longer term, absolutely more important than you know fighting the fires of the day. Right. Thank you so much. When you were first talking about interrupting engineers and, and just specific engineers giving out, you know, like promises for, for fixing things that made me think about how it might just be a boundary problem and how when you said, team, please reconnect everybody through this link to the board it solved the issue for them of getting in conflict with someone that they might like from a different team, you know, like we are all people at the end. We don't want to get in an argument or in a conflict and turn down someone whose request we know how to fulfill or we know can be fulfilled. And so you giving them an actual way of saying no a certain way that isn't destructive to a relationship. I think that's, that's one of the keys of, you know, making this scale communications. Yeah, that's a great, great call out. Sometimes you have to be the big bad wolf um, <laughs> that people can blame. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And to move the organization forward, uh, obviously, which is, you know, like there's no point in being the big bad wolf pointlessly. But that's just me musing. So I know we have touched on this and I have a feeling that your answer might be in depends, but then we can open up that answer and see on what it depends. When in a scaling organization is the right time, do you think to start assigning managers, engineering directors, engineering managers, team leaders, whatever you call them and however you define them, but you know, people who are not responsible for individual contribution, but for managing those individual contributors. You're right. It depends. Um, but I think, uh, looking at kind of the journey of a typical startup CTO can shed some light on that. Every journey is different, right? Uh, every company is different, but one of the patterns that I've seen is, uh, something where the senior IC or the technical founder becomes CTO by default, right? Either through experience and building the thing, 
or you know there just happen to be the person who's been there the longest um and as the team grows what ends up happening is more and more work piles up right maybe the meeting calendar gets from one to two meetings a week to uh you know four or five meetings a day and that individual that uh cto they're not doing the thing that they love anymore they're not doing the thing that they're an expert at anymore right they're not contributing to the code base in the same way they used to be so without their involvement things might start to drop right maybe people will get unhappy maybe delivery is in inconsistent or unpredictable maybe commitments are being dropped right and that's natural as i noted before as the organization grows you have more and more communication pathways and communication avenues and it's just really hard to keep everybody in sync and everybody up to date and if the cto is doing 15 20 30 different things essentially four or five full-time jobs it is inevitable that things are going to drop so i think at the point where your cto kind of starts struggling and starts finding areas of weakness i would say is a good signal that hey this might be an opportunity to go and hire a management uh layer or or somebody responsible for the things that the cto is not uh, necessarily excellent at right so in that case you know uh if you were to look at a cto skill set in terms of a quadrant of like or four categories of people management execution management coding and technology you know governance strategy sales what have you you're going to get a profile of what your current cto does right maybe your cto is really really great at technology coding architecture and maybe they're not great or they lack the experience in the people management and the execution management side right in that case you know bringing on a vp of engineering director of engineering engineering manager to help take that burden off of that CTO and focus on improving those areas of the organization, that can go a really, really long way, right? Because if the CTO is doing everything, then they can't do any of those things particularly well. And if your organization is growing, you want to start getting better at some of those things because um, like the execution management, that's a force multiplier, right? If your organization uh, gets better at executing when you have 10, 15, 20, 30 engineers, you're maximizing the productivity of every single engineer that's in the organization. So yeah, I'd say look at the CTO. Are they being overwhelmed? Look at your organization and your development organization, particularly. Are things being released on time? Do they have the sufficient quality? Is the bug rate going up or down? You know, look at the engineers on your team. Are they happy? Are they productive? Do they see a future at your company, right? Look at how the rest of the org views engineering. Do they have visibility into the things that they've requested or the commitments that have been made, right? If marketing has to work on a marketing campaign for a feature and they don't know when that feature launched or if it even launched at all, there's a gap, right? There's some sort of communication gap that engineering needs to resolve. And if the CTO is too busy to resolve that gap, that's going to cause friction and that's going to cause a lot of misalignment in your organization. So I'd say look at the pain points that you're experiencing, look at the problems. Um, I will also note that not every organization appreciates managers. And you want to make sure before you bring on the managers uh, in your organization that your organization culturally changes their mindset or has the mindset to appreciate what managers do, right? Managers streamline things. They help promote excellence. They improve things over time. They help uh, provide visibility into processes and practices and execution. And if you as an organization do not appreciate that, then you're setting them up for failure, right? I've been in companies where I've been literally told on all hands that managers are useless and people need to do their jobs of executing. And I'm like, you know, sitting in the audience, I'm like, hmm, I'm, a, I'm an engineering manager here. Is my job in danger? Now, you know, thank you for invalidating my life choices, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> but that was because the org didn't realize that there were so many moving parts happening that uh, managers were necessary uh, to create a space for their engineers to do their job. Uh, you know, you don't want your in individual contributors to be chasing down like eight different stakeholders, updating or interpreting product requirements. You know, in addition to uh, coding and building the features, right? And the expectation in that organization was that engineers could do everything, right? Which, as much as we believe it, is very far from the truth. So make sure that your culture also is appreciative and understands what value managers actually provide and what managers actually do for an organization. Wow, thank you. Thank you for shedding light on that, uh, on that second part, because it sounds like even some orgs that you have worked in aren't as prepared, I guess, for management. What it really resonates with me. And so I, I will ask you at the risk of maybe getting sidetracked a little bit, what do you do if the organization isn't responsive to managers or if, if the organization, you know, keeps thinking we don't need managers, we have engineers and, or the engineers think we are enough as we are. Is it possible to scale without managers? I have not seen a successful attempt at scaling without managers. And what ends up happening is the individual contributors, certain individual contributors will start acting like managers, except you get the downsides of the lack of formal authority, right? And it just makes things harder. Um, Google did a study or experiment where they got rid of all their managers. And it turned out really, really poorly for them. And they realized, oh, wait a second, managers are actually providing a significant amount of value here. <laughs> we should bring them back. I'd say if your organization doesn't appreciate managers, it's really about educating the org. And that might mean executive leadership, or that might mean the individual contributors uh, as to the value, right? And it's really important to start measuring and tracking uh, some stuff too, right? Like if, for example, your individual contributors are like, we don't need process, we don't need managers uh, managing our process. If you don't have any evidence that they're wrong, <laughs> um, it's very hard to argue against. But if you're able to look at like things like the change failure rate, the delivery frequency, and point to it and say, well, hey, you say we don't need process or management but our change failure rate is at 20%, which means one in five deploys are failing. Our bug rate is increasing very, very rapidly. We're slowing down over time. It's a lot easier to go and uh, convince individual contributors at that point, because you're literally pointing to the past work and saying, hey, we're trending in the wrong direction. We need to improve that and manage <laughs> towards uh, improving that. And that's what manager does, right? If it's coming from the executive leadership, that's a different story, right? Um, the executive leadership might very much uh, still be in a startup mindset of, hey, if you're not contributing directly, you're not contributing anything. And at that point, I think the discussion should really center around leverage, right? There's certain activities that you can do that will build the next feature, or there's certain activities that you can do that will make the next 100 features a lot faster, a lot a higher quality. And managers are about looking at the next 100 features. So approaching it from that perspective, I found really helps in conversations with uh, executive leadership who might still have that startup uh, IC mindset. Right. What you said earlier about managers making it easier for individual contributors to get the job done and not having to talk to like seven shareholders. I think in that specific definition, managers are really enablers so that individual contributors can really 
do what they are best at and get to the coding part and get to fixing bugs rather than having to talk to everyone in the organization or even outside the organization. So managers really are what you said. They make the next 100 features a lot easier probably to deliver. Exactly, exactly. Okay, one more question to add to that. When or what is the sign of really having to create layers of, of managers? What are, what are some of the signs? Is it just as you grow, there is like a specific number at which you should incorporate more layers of management? Yeah, I think we can go back to the number of communication channels. If mm -hmm. a manager has nine direct reports, that's 36 uh, communication channels uh, between that team, right? But if you have 15, 20, 25 direct reports, what ends up happening is the manager is going to be spending all their time in one-on-ones, right? Or once again, it goes back to that same problem where their focus starts to shift. And you want to make sure that your team has the people management that they need, the career support that they need, performance management to make sure that they're doing well. And if the manager's attention is split amongst too many direct reports, then all of them are going to suffer, right? So I think there's some natural team size restrictions. I've seen uh, between seven to 12 uh, direct reports. That's kind of like a sweet spot uh, for experienced engineering managers, or if they're more junior engineering managers, anywhere between three to seven to start. And just making sure that if the team gets too large, you add a new managers, you know, split out into a different team, make sure that the boundaries are uh, good. But then what ends up happening is uh, you have a bunch of managers who are then reporting to somebody, right? CTO, VP of engineering, whatever. And then uh, same problem uh, occurs just to level up, right? You have a whole bunch of manager or managers reporting to somebody and they are now not getting the support that they need. So getting at that point, like a director la uh, layer, a senior manager layer uh, to help alleviate some of that burden and uh, reduce the number of communication channels is important. So yeah, it, as your organization grows, it keeps just reappearing at different layers of the organization. Right, right. Thank you. Thank you. And as we are running out of time, there are a few more questions, but what I'm really interested in is to get your take on how often to reiterate what we have standardized or if there is like a specific timeline as to which a growing company should look at its processes, what is the sort of recurring method for that? Yeah, you should definitely be reevaluating a process at minimum quarterly. But honestly, like you can take a look at process and if you have the measurement and the metrics and the tracking to see the impact of a process, you can iterate as fast as you can see signals in that process, right? Or signals in those metrics. So if you're tracking, like for example, some of the fundamental DevOps metrics like change failure rate, deployment frequency, change volume, mean time to restore uptime. If you're tracking those like cycle time, then if you implement a process and you see over time a trending in the wrong direction, right? Maybe your cycle time starts going up. As soon as you implement that process and you have a pretty clear signal that that a process has uh, added to your cycle time, maybe you accidentally add a wait time to a certain stage of your review pipeline, whatever that is, then you go and iterate immediately, right? You don't have to wait a quarter to go and fix that problem. And if you're able to empower your engineering managers, if you're able to empower your leaders, or if, and ultimately if you're able to empower your teams and give them the information, give them the knowledge, you can let them experiment at the pace that they're comfortable with, right? 
And it's very much very similar to how we approach software development in, in an agile, iterative, incremental manner. We should approach process in the same way, right? We go and do something, measure the effects of it, and based on the feedback that we got, make an update to the process and then see the effects of that, right? And the faster we do that, over time, the more refined our process gets, right? And one thing to also note is that as the company grows and goes through these different phases, pre-seed, seed, A, B, C, the processes that worked in the past are not going to be uh, working at the next stage, right? You always have to be reevaluating your processes and practices when the organization enters a different part of its life cycle, right? Maybe they go from pure innovation uh, model into a maintenance model, right? If that happens, you know, the processes you were following aren't going to probably aren't going to work for the next phase. So you want to make sure that you're reevaluating which processes are still providing value and which are not and get rid of or change the ones that are not providing value. And that's also how you kind of combat this uh, process cruft that often builds up in organizations over time, where the process exists and it, it creates friction to do something, but the reason for doing that process uh, no longer exists. You need to be very, very vigilant of those situations and make sure that you're constantly grooming and curating the processes that you have and making sure that they're still providing value, that you know you can measure the effects of them either through some standard set of metrics or some qualitative or sentiment analysis, right? Maybe you can survey your developers and ask, do you feel better about your job, right? And if a process greatly negatively impacts that or positively impacts that, you know, that's that's signal as well, right? Awesome. Thank you so much. We have touched on a great many things and I'm so thankful you could join us today because I certainly learned a lot about aligning all these things and about all these different perspectives that we can take when we are even thinking about, you know, growing in a really fast pace. Is there anything that you'd like to add uh, a tip to our listeners or a word of warning to anybody who is looking to scale? Just some advice. Half the battle is really starting. You don't need to be an expert to do any of this stuff, right? The 80-20 rule really applies here. Automating a deploy doesn't necessarily mean setting up uh, Kubernetes, right? It might just mean writing a bash script of the commands that you already run and sharing that with your team, right? Intake doesn't necessarily need to be this massive process, right? It could very much mean, hey, put your request in this Excel spreadsheet and then we'll look at it, right? Start small. Iterate and respond to the feedback that you're getting and make sure you don't, that over time you're implementing ways to figure out and measure whether something's actually working or not. Half the battle is starting and once you start, that's a lot of value already. So take that first step. Thank you so much, dearest listeners and watchers. Just go ahead and do it. Thank you so much for joining us. If anybody would like to get more information, you mentioned that you do some mentoring, perhaps ask you some questions about this interview. Where could our listeners get in touch with you? Or yeah, follow you uh, they can either uh, connect with me on LinkedIn or they can go to my website, uh, jakeefro.com. I have my contact information there. Uh, always uh, down to answer questions and uh, talk shop. Thank you. Thank you so much. With that Thank said, you for having me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. With that said, dearest listeners, we had a really valuable conversation here today with Joseph Gaffreau, who is the Director of Engineering at Health Sherpa. We talked about building teams that are ready to scale. And with that said, with automation on the really smallest level to 
aligning values on the biggest level and everything in between really to make sure that your team can become the best possible team and you can scale your organization. Thank you for coming on the show again. Thank you for listening and watching. I am Carolina Toth and I hope to see you next time. Thanks for staying with us. This was the Level Up Engineering Podcast by Apex Lab. Check them out at apexlab.io. And don't forget to subscribe to our channel, rate our content, and share your thoughts on this episode. See you next time. See you next time.